One of the difficulties about where we are right now is that the needs to radically rethink the material basis of what we do to be fundamentally different than what we know and inherited from modernism is quite clear. We need to shift. We don't have as many materials available to do that with. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with architects Paul Lewis and Mark Surumaki, principals in the New York-based practice LTL. Paul and Mark join us today to discuss their recent book, Manual of Biogenic House Sections. Mark, Paul, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I know you're I know you're busy, among other things. Um so the book is fantastic. Uh, I think it's an extraordinary contribution to the conversation and a great com- contribution to the conversations we've been having here in this series. Um, I just want to open with the adjective biogenic uh, among the various adjectives that you had available and that you refer to uh, in the text. Um, you know, biogenic, you know, has a couple of interesting definitions to it. I mean, the simplest, the most base uh, definition that we find is, you know, that which is produced um, uh, through the activity of living organisms. And in that regard, I suppose, you know, um, what's interesting about it is that it moves well past simply, you know, plant-based or low carbon, but just T- tell us about that decision, uh, the, the decision to use biogenic as the frame uh, for what would otherwise be plant-based, low-carbon, et cetera. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a great question. And it's one that we did, <clears throat> I think, debate uh, quite a bit in terms of what the appropriate terminology would be. And, you know, there's some level of interpretation which would indicate that bio- biogenic is actually a bit of a misnomer in relationship to the contents of the book since we do also discuss uh, stone, earth, and reuse extensively as some of the kind of categories that we cover. Um, but as you note, it, it, in a sense that that notion of biogenic of being generated by life and kind of connected to, uh, let's say, regenerative biogenic or, or biological cycles is not necessarily restricted purely to to plant-based materials. Um, uh, and we also were looking at for a term that went beyond simply the notion of reducing embodied carbon um, and that um, and, and did in a way sort of entangle this notion of things that that come out of um, uh, the kind of ecosystem that come out of um, natural growth that have a kind of connection to to natural cycles. Um, and, um, you know, struggling with the kind of terminology of trying to um, uh, construct a title that was at once somewhat pithy, which we may have failed at, uh, unfortunately, uh, but also descriptive in the broadest possible way. Um, uh, it's sort of where we where we arrived. And I do think that it, it's it, it's true that I think the primary focus on the book is on those plant based materials um, as generators. So I, I think um, it was the it was the closest fit in a sense. Yeah. I mean, the title, you know, having known your work that I was predisposed to want to acquire whatever your next book was, but, you know, the, the title did get my attention. It, it's not the shortest title, you know, on the bookshelf, but I will say it's one of those titles where every word is doing some pretty heavy lifting. You know, I think every word is right is quite cool. So beyond the simple definition, let's say, or the most obvious definition, you know, Oxford uh, English Dictionary refers to 
uh, a broader understanding of the biogenic, which I think kind of substantiates your your list of of, of ten sections. That is, uh, Oxford applied to the formation of rocks, traces that is fossils or structures as a result of the activities of living organisms. So it's the resultant of living activity that includes a broad range. It includes fermentation, soil production by worms, you know, a whole range, you know, fossil records, etc. So so I I in the end, while I was interested at the kind of the craft of using this, you know, this term that's, you know, kind of being recuperated from the sciences to distinguish your contribution, but also actually how broad, uh, how broad minded it is ultimately. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the ambitions of the book was to try to be very, very precise about how materials could be used architecturally and spatially, but then to also look at the ripple effects into a larger context, right? So where do they come from? How are they harvested? What are the consequences in the field, if you will, both before they become a material and after they're a material? So in a sense, a kind of embracing of, of a kind of agency of the architect that might go beyond simply form making and making making an object or a building and being done with it, but moving upstream to you know, what are those materials to begin with and where do they end up and how do we start to look at more uh, inventive notions of design and expansive notions of design once you look at a kind of broader uh, array that you can engage in. Um, Biogenics seemed to get us there, but I, as Mark said, we were we had uh, probably uh, 50 different titles at one point, and some of them were so unwieldy as to be uh, you know, not able to fit on the, on the page. And we also were burdened by the fact we were following a relatively pithy title of manual of section, which we wanted to link this to. And, and so, you know, manual of house sections didn't work, manual of biogenic and geogenic house sections was a mouthful. So you started going down these, these different lines and um, we ended up where we, we ended up. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the, the 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 geogenic. I'm maybe I'm glad it didn't make it to the title, but I, I mean, the the book is organized in these ten these ten sections, which, in my mind, are kind of clustered. They include you know wood frame and mass timber in the in the woodsy area, grasses, bamboo, straw, hemp, among other things. Uh, things I think of as grounds, that is earth, brick, and stone. But then this ultra category of reuse, right? And so there's something by the end of the 10 that I think biogenic has been redeemed, but also really kind of uh, transformed uh, in, in many, many ways. Um, the book opens with a, a pretty sober account, um, both sober and sobering account of the role of you know construction and the contribution of architects in atmospheric carbon and anthropogenic climate change. Um, uh, you rightly, I think, praise you know recent efforts to reduce energy consumption uh, in both in the construction of buildings and in buildings use. Um, but you shift the focus to the role of embodied energy in building materials, and basically the question of embodied uh, carbon. One of the things that was most striking to me was your claim well substantiated that um, in average buildings, structure, foundation, and envelope constitute something like 80% of a body's, a building's total embodied uh, carbon. Uh, and I, I wonder, you know, that that leads you then to the series of postulates, right? So the no, no use of Portland cement. <laughs> Let's start there. Um, how is it possible, you know, for practicing architects, you have a going concern, you're, you're building things quite, quite, quite interestingly. Um, how is it that you imagine practice, you know, after Portland cement? It's a great question. And one of the, one of the, one of the difficulties uh, about where we are right now is that 
the needs to radically rethink the material basis of what we do to be fundamentally different than what we know and inherited from modernism um, is, is, is quite clear. We need to shift. We don't have as many materials available to do that with. Um, so in some respects, what we were trying to do with the book was both put forward, what are the materials that are currently available? How have people built with them? It is possible to build with these and it's possible to have uh, experimentation, architectural experimentation. Design doesn't have to go away. It actually is a different model of design than modernism potentially. Um, but we would also argue that there has to be a significant investment in the development of of fundamentally different materials, uh, ideally based in, in plants. So, and in some ways, if you look at how long it took for concrete and, and, and steel and glass to be kind of the standard materials, we need to find a way to get to the point where innovative materials working with, with bamboo or hybrids between bamboo and straw and other, uh, other, uh, agro waste, for example, um, we need to find a way that, that we can get to those materials. The problem is we don't have as much time anymore. So there's a kind of an accelerated anxiety or an anxi anxiety about the need to accelerate, um, but to put out there what is our actually currently uh, being done, we felt was an important mandate for the book to try to accomplish. I think the other, <laughs> the correlate to that is that for us, I think it's not an either or proposition. Um, and not a question of sort of simple replacement, right? Or supplantation, right? That we're not sort of arguing that plant-based materials are going to be able to do everything that concrete does and that this is going to be a wholesale um, overnight uh, transformation. We know that there's all sorts of really interesting, innovative work done on low carbon concretes and beginning to kind of look at other possibilities in terms of, um, you know, taking over the kind of high carbon footprint associated with cement-based um, concretes and, and shift to other modes of production. Um, given the ubiquity of concrete, it's sort of, you know, necessity in many parts of the world and the, the kind of extreme difficulty of sort of summarily eliminating it in some sense. Um, but at the same time, we it's it's really a kind of both and, right? The, that um, although we don't necessarily argue that these are going to fundamentally replace you know, all of the sort of more processed industrial building materials that we've been utilizing for the past, uh, you know, couple of hundred years, it's necessary to start deploying these um, because of the, both the urgency of the situation relative to the, the climate and the very real needs to address embodied carbon, but that they also can provide in the same way that steel, glass, and concrete provided a, a, a basis for architectural form and invention at the beginning of the 20th century, that rethinking these materials in a 21st century context can actually lead to architectural innovation. Um, in other words, not simply supplanting more damaging or more kind of carbon intensive materials with um, kind of more um, kind of useful or less environmentally degrading ones, but actually seeing how those materials can actually um, provoke architectural responses, how they can kind of catalyze um, new ways of spatial and tectonic um, kind of thinking, right? Um, and for us, that's one of the challenges as well, which is that there's a certain level at which, um, although there is growing interest in um, these materials for all of the reasons that, that we're talking about today, um, there's also a certain stigmatization, let's say, in, let's say, more conventional architectural circles about um, these materials at some level um, and a kind of association um, 
of them with a kind of, uh, let's say, kind of retrograde or potentially kind of nostalgic um, architectural response. So I think part of what we were trying to address in the book through the selection of the projects um, was to really see the potentials of these materials as as spurs for more interesting ways of making buildings in the case of the book houses, um, not simply more environmentally or, or let's say less environmentally damaging. I mean, that's a, among the more interesting aspects of the project for me is that it's 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 not simply a, a kind of technical manual about you know replacing these materials with those other materials. Architecture proceeds you know, unaffected, but rather there's a very strong set of claims about the relationship between thinking about materials and how buildings come together and their spatial and material expression. That seems quite clear. I mean, I want to build, uh, Mark, on that point that you make about the temporality. I think you know both both of you have referred to the kind of temporality of the of the project. So on the one hand, there are moments in the book, there are moments in the project where you refer to, if not traditional, let's say, you know, if not archaic, you know, older building practices, let's say, pre-modern, let's say, you know, uh, that, that predate the, the triumvirate of glass, steel, and concrete that you mentioned. But at the same time, there is a kind of forward thinking here, right? So so t tell me about that temporality. Like on the one hand, are, are you, you know, are there aspects of traditional building techniques that you feel like we've lost that we can benefit from? And how do we balance that or is balance the right metaphor with, you know, being of our time uh, and here now today? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, we would like to argue that these are not, um, uh, you know, we don't want to set them up as a false binary that somehow you can, you either have to go back and build in traditional ways and build the same houses or forms or, or, or buildings that were done. Uh, uh, traditionally, um, uh, or one uh, one moves forward and therefore doesn't work with these materials from the past. That somehow we want to kind of benefit from the knowledge that that can be uh, uh, gleaned from history, but to not see um, the use of uh, traditional materials as resistant to innovation. And I think that's. I mean, also from a standpoint of just purely one of the things that architecture does really well is produce a level of seduction, right? So design produces some degree of seduction. And so if there's a way that we can look at houses that are using traditional materials or, or materials that are often associated with traditional uh, vernacular construction, but are actually pushing the design, uh, pushing the section in particular into really intriguing directions. That's and uh, that's where we get into this kind of combination of, of what Mark was referring to as a kind of both and. Um, I will say that in uh, selecting houses for the book, we probably went through 300 different houses and there's always that kind of question of, have they worked with materials in an interesting way? Are they small houses? And do they have an architectural ambition? Is there something about the design that isn't just reconstituting known models, using the materials just as a substitute for an existing material, but actually finding a reciprocity between the materials in some form of spatial, formal, organization or section uh, innovation? Uh, that was the kind of litmus test for where, uh, where we came, uh, how we selected the buildings. Each of the um, each of the sections, each of the ten sections, is you know opens with you know diagrams and some and some uh, key information around the material itself, but then move very quickly to both large scale sections, but also photographs and other drawings in support of over fifty uh, projects uh, by an equal number of architects and and practices. H how many of them are LTL projects? None. <laughs> So you you searched uh, high and low. You found three hundred. You know you made a short list of three hundred. 
you published 50 some, do I have the number right? And you decided there was nothing in house that made the grade. Well, there, it, it should be, it should be stated. One of the ironies behind this book is that we have purposely, um, uh, focus our practice on public um, projects, um, projects with institutions, cultural institutions. We do not have a lot of residential work in our portfolio. Um, so in a weird way, this was a kind of interest in the forbidden fruit, right? We haven't gone to houses in part because of an anxiety about the, you know, the dominance of the single family house and its problems, right? So, uh, you know, uh, so, <laughs> so in some ways it was an easy decision. We, I don't think we would have included our own houses anyways. Um, but, uh, it did lend itself to, at the end of completing the book, we were, you know, we were, there are parts, we were, we we're a little frustrated and fascinated by the possibilities that, of what one could do. And we did design five houses, uh, this, uh, you know, the summer after the book was out, we designed five houses that are all using plant-based materials and really saying, okay, if we work with straw and really pursue the issue of poche and thickness, can we get to a very different kind of organization, spatial organization, if we use the CLT and embrace the blank as opposed to cutting it up into small pieces and use it as this kind of massive sheet, could we could we develop a different kind of architectural form, a, a house form? And so, yeah, but that's not in the book. That was something we did supplement to as a consequence of the book. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the phone, the phones, I'm sure the phones will be ringing off the hook now for, for you know, plant-based houses. Um, Paul, you used the term, you know, anxiety, and, and that was something I wanted to, to sort of draw you out on. So, so in the introduction, there is this kind of, it's not defensive, but it is a little bit fraught piece, which kind of defends the idea of why house. And I want to just get you, you know, on that topic, right? So, so as you say, I, I think of your practice as being, among other things, really at the forefront of thinking about urbanity in the suburban condition, but also a range of kind of forms of publicness and obviously an impressive built uh, built array of built projects in the public realm. And, and so house doesn't immediately, you know, attend in my experience of LTL. So why did you choose house as the frame? Well, so, and maybe this has to kind of track back a little bit to the previous publication, Manual of Section, uh, which also didn't feature any LTL projects, by the way, but um, except in the end as an addendum. Um, but, uh, but one of the things that we noticed, um, in the generation of manual of section was that for obvious reasons, um, the sections of larger projects were, you know, quite effective at, um, conveying the kind of spatial, uh, kind of overall spatial logics of, of those projects. But the, uh, the sections that focused on smaller scale buildings, and there were one or two houses or several houses in the book were able to reveal at a much higher level of magnification and detail, the kind of tectonic and material assembly logics of those projects. So when we were thinking about doing a book on biogenic materials, the house presented itself for a number of reasons. One was because, you know, in a very pragmatic sense, um, the scale of the drawings would allow for a closer investigation of precisely those relationships that we were most interested in namely this kind of uh, capacity of the material to kind of provoke architectural uh, innovation in, in some way, shape or form um, in relationship to the section. Um, so that was that was a, a strangely maybe pragmatic consideration, which is that houses fit well into the format of a publication um, uh, and would allow for the kind of scrutiny of those those conditions. The other reality is, is that in and, you know, you're, you sort of alluded to it is that um, um, houses are one of the primary 
kind of programmatic genres in which these kinds of materials are being tested out, right? Houses are um, smaller scale investment. They're often, right, the, it, it's often easier for an architect to build an experimental house. And there's this whole history, obviously, tracking back through modernism of the house as a site of of innovation and experimentation, right? Including, right, the kind of early modernist houses of all of the kind of iconic figures that we associate with that movement. So it was true that when we began to look at this, we didn't actually immediately settle on the house as the, the kind of pure carrier of the book. But after kind of surveying many different projects, we realized that particularly in relationship to some of the, let's say, less widely accepted plant-based materials like uh, straw or hemp uh, or even bamboo, uh, let's say, it was difficult to find larger scale examples that we felt were as interesting as the houses that we discovered. So there, there was that very straightforward reason, I think. Um, and then the other was, and maybe there's a little bit of post-justification in, in this, is, is just the notion that precisely because the house is a, is a problem, right? It's a contributor to a lot of these issues that we're, we're um, alluding to in the book because of the, um, the kind of wasteful land use strategies associated with it, its kind of relationship to um, the automobile and its contributions to climate change, um, uh, kind of social um, uh, issues of exclusion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, can we actually use the house as an, as an interesting kind of nexus for these things and look at maybe um, the house as a as a site in which some of these things could be implemented more rapidly, more easily. Um, and because of the massive scale of, of housing construction in the United States, um, in fact, if we were to, uh, let's say now, uh, kind of transpose some of these new materials onto the way houses are currently constructed, it could have uh, a, a kind of, um, in, in its kind of cumulative effect, uh, a major, a substantial, uh, kind of transformative uh, capacity. Yeah, one of the the other criteria that we had uh, in selecting the houses was to pick ones that were small. So, with the incredible growth of the house, particularly the single family house in the U.S., which is you know exploded from what a thousand square feet in 1950 to now being something like 2,500. Most of the uh, houses in the book are less than a thousand square feet. So, trying to also look at how smaller could it be a kind of a benefit and how that smaller size might have a reciprocity with a different material uh, basis for construction. Yeah, not only are we building over a million single family homes in the United States every year, but currently we're building them with the exception of the wood frame, which is obviously a biogenic material. They're, they're built primarily from pet materials that are constructed based on the kind of petrochemical industry. So um, that have um, kind of detrimental effects on human health and um, other uh, kind of larger environmental impacts, right? So they're, they're, as a kind of subject matter, um, there are a lot of things that could benefit from transformation when we talk about the kind of standardized construction of the house in the country today. On that topic, um, one for me, one of the most powerful parts of the argument is the kind of analysis that you provide of how house construction in the U.S. has been motivated, right? You have this six-part kind of argument, these sort of six values or vectors. Uh, lighter is better. Walls are assembled out of thin layers. Each thin layer has a single engineering purpose divorced from the others. Uh, these layers necessarily require multiple layers for redundancy. Uh, the strict binary thermal and moisture between inside outside um, and that each material on its own 
and collectively has to basically endure in perpetuity without maintenance, right? That for me, that was as lucid a you know paragraphs as as I've read recently, um, and it leads to this in contrast this kind of thesis about the biogenic house that it prioritizes thickness over thinness, hybridity or combination of various materials or roles of various materials, as well as maybe a productive ambiguity between inside and outside. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, I, I think that's. Um... Uh, uh, exactly, uh, uh, exactly to the point. And to be honest, there's a bit of a, a kind of implicit criticism of the way in which modernism, which did privilege lightness, thinness, uh, etc., actually ended up having a kind of a, a an affinity with the plastics, the world of plastic, right? And plastic ended up being the perfect manifestation of some of modernism's ambitions, right? So we're inheriting these super thin, multiple performing, or sorry, multiple layers, single performance, hygienic, all of these values that, to, to be honest, is, are still embedded in our, in our criteria of what is good within the domestic realm, right? Um, and so we were trying to set up an opposition where maybe things that were actually considered retrograde or if not um, ethically corrupt, thickness is ethically corrupt in architecture, you know, unhygienic, the idea that you would have more porous boundaries between inside and outside. And obviously there's good reasons for many of these things, but they've been kind of divorced from the motivations for why they're in place. And then we just kind of accept the fact that thinness should be good. Um, not realizing a thinness is good if it reduces material weight and therefore is cheaper and you can build light, you can build more for less money and solve other problems. But um, we've kind of forgotten the consequences of why we're, why we're obsessed with things that are thin. Um, and are there realms that we could pursue that are quite opposite? So, um, right. Well, one, one of the fascinations was that once one is operating within the context of biogenic materials, it requalifies some of the sort of accepted standards of kind of architectural thinking, right? So this notion of optimization in general um, makes sense if those materials are high cost materials that are actually um, resource intensive in their production and materialization, right? But if you're thinking about materials that are, as are frequently in the case in the materials um, in the book, inexpensive, uh, frequently ubiquitous, often waste products of other agricultural processes, for example, um, then suddenly the notion of using more of the material, which in fact sequesters more carbon, um, shifts or inverts from being wasteful to, be actu to being actually generative or productive, right? And so this ability of thinking through biogenic materials in a way that actually inverts some of our assumptions about building um, was for us one of the really interesting Kind of capacities of thinking these materials. So as Paul is saying, um, thickness is maybe not something here to be shunned, right, as wasteful and profligate, but actually something to be embraced because not only does it have thermal and potentially kind of spatial interests, thermal benefits and spatial interests, but in fact, um, it's potentially making a building that's actually sequestering more carbon um, and creating other benefits to the kind of larger environmental system. So small houses, thick walls. Um, on the role of building materials, thick and thin alike, in relationship, Mark, you mentioned public health. Um, uh, and in the book, um, you collectively refer to Michael Pollan's famous formulation in his uh, book, Food Rules. He, he has this book with 64 food rules, and he you know, has been for some time working up to formulating a kind of 
you know, answer to the question, why is it we, you know, eat so badly and we don't really have very clear guidelines. And so his formulation, Poland's formulation that you uh, reference, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, has inspired uh, you um, and your partner to come up with um, your own formulation of live in delightful spaces, not too big, made from plants. Yeah. That, and, and, you know, part of the, well, this, what we really loved about the kind of the brevity of, of Michael Pollan's comment is that it's easy to remember. Um, it doesn't involve a massive spreadsheet. It doesn't involve uh, a year's worth or two years worth of uh, life cycle assessment to you know determine that it's valuable. And I think that's one of the real anxieties about um, about the construction industry and about the ability, we do have the ability to um, have incredible data about almost anything. And our worry was that if you go into the kind of world of carbon and carbon counting and kind of attribution and can you count the biogenic or not and the like, and these things are absolutely crucial things to go through, but they become a burden to the role of design at some level. If you have to simultaneously, you know, design uh, accounting for code and now accounting for carbon, are you going to do it? Right. So part of our argument was maybe actually we need to find a way to make this simpler and to try to find a way that there's a path forward that actually doesn't necessarily assume a level of massive amount of complexity before you make a decision. And so that was part of the catalyst there was just, you know, and we, I'm not sure we all agreed about the word delightful. I think we, we internally debated that one. Um, I think we had other versions of that, but basically make, make real space, make wonderful space. Um, don't make too much of it and try to make it out of plants. I thought it was powerful. I mean, for me, Poland's formulation is so succinctly distilled. I mean, I've always recalled it as eat real food, which is his, his modifier to it. Um, you focus, you know, Paul, just now on, in, on delightful, I focused on live because beyond you know the work of an architect or the work of a specifier or even a client, what you're suggesting is how we as a culture might uh, might might live. Um, I was also struck by uh, a rule in Poland's book, uh, Food Rules, that you didn't refer to, at least as far as I could see, which is his rule number 19. If it's a plant, eat it. If it's made in a plant, don't. Um, and one of the topics we've been touching on here is really the kind of industrial delivery of building systems, right? So in addition to the critique of modernity that you've been quite clear about, it strikes me that there's also a, an implicit and maybe explicit critique of the ways in which material systems are specified, delivered. Uh, Mark, you mentioned the kind of petroleum you know, extraction industry that delivers many of the high performance thin materials that we're specifying. Is there a broader critique here of uh, our profession's reliance upon those systems, including the accountancy that you mentioned, Paul, or even the, the in a litigious context, you know, the role of you know underwriters, laboratories, and systems that are you know verifiable and therefore uh, you know uh, specifiable? Well, I mean, I think at the at the most general level, and you sort of touched on it already, Charles, that, that a lot of these materials they're obviously extractive materials. Um, architects don't frequently, because of, in, and maybe in a similar way to the ways in which um, consumers are unaware of the processes utilized to create the food that they're consuming and purchasing, architects, are, I think, are frequently blind to the ways in which um, the materials that they're utilizing and deploying on a daily basis um, have um, you know, catastrophic consequences for environments and for communities, right? Both in terms of their extraction, their processing, um, and their disposal, 
right? And so I think, you know, part of it's simply becoming the importance of becoming conscious of that and understanding where things originate from. And this notion that a building is not a static artifact, but really a kind of temporary accumulation of matter that comes from somewhere and ultimately ends up somewhere else, right? Because materials endure long after the, the kind of um, end of life of the building. Um, one could say infinitely, arguably, right? Um, and so I think there's there's that aspect of it. There's also the the idea that, of course, the the kind of standardization of building materials through industrial production has created the kind of identity of architect as specifier, right? That um, that architects are essentially consuming products, right? Which we then assemble into larger products, right? Um, which are then understood as commodities, right? So I think this idea of somehow moving away from the mentality of kind of building products is embedded in there. Now we, at the same time, recognize that we're part of it industry and a profession that is bound by many different kind of regulatory agencies and procedures. Um, and so, um, you know, the fact that there are materials coming onto the marketplace um, that are um, kind of utilizing biogenic materials that are kind of low carbon, that are being much more conscious about um, their processes of production and where they're originating from is, you know, is fantastic, right? And we don't want to um, negate that. But I, I do think that in a way, thinking about um, the material process, rather than thinking about the material product is part of the, the kind of underlying ethos of the of the book. And placing those materials in there, uh, if not life cycle, in a, in a longer durée, it's, it's very much akin to the discourse on material ecologies and landscape architecture in the last decade, which are more mindful of both the labor relations, environmental implications of extraction sites, the carbon implications of shipping material, um, you know, around the around the world for processing, um, and and is shifting increasingly to this sense of um, you know the proximity of extraction or proximity of cultivation and growing. Um, just to pursue the the food analogy a little bit further, you know, we we've seen a generation or two now of. Um, of uh, of chefs, you know, who have been radicalized around either the slow or the local, and who have given over the idea of a French bistro in the capital in favor of cultivating their own material. Can you imagine? Is there anything in thinking about architects or landscape architects, you know, being more engaged on the production side? And is there something about the proximity of that production that matters in the same way that you know local food uh, has come to be such a kind of uh, touchstone? Yeah. It's, um... I think it's a super interesting question and it does push up against all of the regulatory agencies that make that difficult, right? So um, one of the things that we've been looking and trying to kind of see uh, and, and to follow really is where what are the kind of plant-based material companies that are working through a more industrialized process to make products that have worked through the, the, um, the agencies to bring things to market that are um, are based in and in, in, in plant-based uh, um, materials. Um, and one of the interesting things is that many of these take the form of installation. Um, so things where architects were not that concerned about the aesthetics and therefore architects tended only select uh, their insulation based on our value, but uh, most most insulation is, is petroleum-based and uh, super flammable, super toxic at every part of its life. Um, 
And some of the companies that we're most interested in and have been looking at are you know, ones like Timber HP that are using wood fiber residue, and but but through a very industrialized process. Don't don't get it. You know, this is not you're not going to go out and do this yourself. But so there's this interesting kind of friction between if food on the one hand you can grow and make and then do your own, it's much much harder to do that in architecture, right? Um, We've been experimenting this summer with compressing straw and trying to figure out a way to make a structural insulation. Um, and it's it's difficult. And the idea of actually producing that at a scale that could then go to the market, I don't think would happen. Uh, just uh, not, not through us, at least. So, um, But on the other hand, it is kind of fascinating to see the degree to which people do want to continue the, the history of uh, the kind of DIY-based uh, construction and how architecture students are taking that much more seriously, uh, imagining themselves in that role as well. Um, I think one of the one of the interesting frictions has always been the DIY and the high design have been seen as oppositional to each other. Um, and I think finding ways maybe through the realm of materials that there can be uh, a kind of beneficial alignment where design and local construction can start to kind of coalesce around the the kind of material um as a as a basis for commonality and the other i mean there's the diy aspect of it there's also just the notion of local resourcing of materials right that is kind of part of that and i think that's that's easier to access than the maybe architectural equivalent of farm to table right um so that and we not we all know the kind of truisms of this right that that utilizing materials that are coming from the kind of kind of the region from the locality as close as possible to the site uh, are going to reduce some of those kind of carbon costs using materials that are minimally processed uh, uh, does the same thing. So the idea of, of not sourcing materials that are having to kind of traverse half the globe to get here, right? Uh, and that incur heavy carbon costs in terms of just the industrial methodologies of their fabrication, um, I think that's something I think all architects can do, right? To start to just think about where things are a little bit more consciously, a little bit more attentively, just about where things are coming from. I mean, stone is a kind of primary example of that. Stone is carbon carbon neutral, but if it's coming from right Italy to ship to Connecticut, then suddenly that's no longer the case, right? So, um, so you know, a lot of these things. There's the intrinsic carbon value of the material, but there's also all of the other assorted transportational and fabrication and processing um, kind of um, uh, uh, kind of costs from a carbon standpoint associated with it. And I think being simply conscious of those geographic relationships, I think is 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 a, is lower hanging fruit than maybe constructing directly everything oneself, right? Mm. I mean, I, if it, Mark, the story reminds me of um, my colleague, Christian Worthman, who was at the GSD for many years. He was a landscape architect in practice, and he was working for a, a leading landscape architecture firm in the US, and he was specifying a flamed granite plaza on a university campus a modest project you know not terribly you know not terribly groundbreaking but that you know 100 square meters of flamed granite uh you know the stone was you know quarried in italy and then it was shipped to the suez canal and it was eventually then honed and then sent back through the you know san francisco golden gate and and by the time you did the accountancy on this the implication and then the third slide that christian showed was the 52 materials he had to specify fasteners screws glues adhesives various you know 
alchemical concoctions, you know. So I think what you're getting at is, is profound and has, I think, a lot to offer ac across the design uh, fields. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, Paul, these kind of studies in the, in, in, in the office, right? So, you, you know, the, and you're in this long tradition of, you know, architects or, you know, they're making stuff up and they're testing and, and maybe they're not taking materials or systems to scale. Maybe that's the role of industry or for others. Um, but I want to ask you about the relationship of the book and the, and the project to, to the office, right? We should, of course, acknowledge that the book is co-authored with your third partner, David J. Lewis, um, as was the previous book, Manual of, of Section. Um, and I want to ask you about the so on the one hand, this is clearly an LTL production, um, but are there boundaries? Uh, does it get a job number? Um, you know, is it, it, it seems to be from my reading of it so tightly embedded in the work of LTL that it's really a product of the office. Is that a fair reading? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And um, it was definitely a, a, a long labor, uh, went over four years, evolved and changed. Um, and really two, two people in our office, Kyle uh, Reich and Celia Chesabel, worked on it continuously for uh, a year and a half. They, they, um, they were fantastic and really embraced and um, kind of loved the book. Um, and uh, it wouldn't have happened without either of the two of them. Um, I will say that our, we have shifted our practice. Um, I mean, we, we are not immune to the ignorance of the petrochemicals in our buildings from 10, 15 years ago. And we, and we started to shift, we, 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 as we acquire knowledge um, about the, the consequences of materials, about the consequences of embodied carbon, we, we, we kind of changed our practice. And we're at a point now where we, 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 we will now build in a very different way than we would have five years ago. Um, and that's, 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 that involves some growing pain, um, involves some different ways of approaching how you, how you, how you do a project and the type of projects you're going to work on. Um, so even though the book is, um, or I should say, because the book is very much of the office, it influenced the way in which we think about what we should be doing in the office and they evolved in parallel with each other. Yeah. And I think that's, typical in a sense of the way our office has evolved over time, right? All the three principals are educators. Um, there's always been an aspect of the office that's been involved in self-generated research. And that's often take the form, taken the form of publications, um, manual of section being the most obvious example, uh, and now the kind of latest book. Um, and there is a kind of feedback loop, hopefully, between that research the work that we do, um, and the, let's say the kind of learning that Paul's referring to where there's a kind of co-evolution between the, the, the work of the firm, um, these more independently initiated kind of research directives, um, and then a, a, a kind of cross-pollination between those strands in a way that I think is, as is being noted, really is kind of changing the way that we're thinking about or practice. I don't think we're alone in that. I think architects, you know, across the board are having to inevitably reconsider these things and how we build and what we build with at a very fundamental level. And um, um, and we're we're certainly um, uh, trying to do that at, at, in, in every possible way in in the office. Well, the practice is is changing. Um your commitment to section seems to be enduring, right? So you mentioned the 2016 uh, manual of section. 
pithy title, shorter for sure. Um, wh what is it about section? I mean, I, I have my own, you know, training as an architect and my own thoughts about it, but in the context of a architectural, you know, practices, which are based in Rhino and Revit and, and, and BIM, among other things, you know, we've, you know, uh, my, my friend, you know, Scott Cohen says, you know, architecture you know, dropped representation a long time ago in favor of pure, you know, pure data, basically. Um, and so you've mentioned already the role of the section in showing us the, at the scale of a house, how these materials come together. Uh, what is it about the section that endures for you? And do you do you find that a practice that um, that is increasingly or still relevant in, in, in the day-to-day -day work of an architect? Yeah, I, I think actually in part because it's not everything all at once. It's not the three-dimensional model. It's not the... Um, um, it's not, it's not the, the entirety, um, that it can foreground certain readings, certain abstract readings that to a certain degree push the, the, uh, the question of image a little bit back, um, which is to say the section is not something you'll ever be able to see. It's an invisible, it's an abstract cut. Um, and so it reveals things in ways that, uh, full three-dimensional models often hide, under the, uh, the intensification of image and form that they tend to tend to privilege. Um, the other thing that then starts to come up is a little bit more about how things work, right? So how do forces flow? How does energy, how do heat systems circulate? How, do, how does, uh, what are the, the structural uh, paths through a building? What are the material consequences on form, et cetera? Um, because you can see that the exchange between what is hidden in the wall, the structure, the insulation, et cetera, and it's a relationship to, to, to image, if you will. Um, so section for us has always been this kind of way of thinking about a project that allows you to uh, put a little bit to, um, to downgrade the emphasis on image. That's probably the best way to put it. And to then uh, increase the focus on um, the material uh, performance um, and other aspects of the building that we were very interested in. So in some ways, if there is a connection between the two books, it's, it is the section. It's the section was instrumental in understanding how the more iconic buildings in the first book um, were developed, how they were, how they worked, um, uh, how they worked in ways that, that would push image to a secondary condition and that ability to use the section to understand how materials might have consequences uh, was then really the catalyst for the second book. And I think the other thing that you alluded to, Charles, is that frequently, both in our, our work as practitioners, but also in our, in our roles as teachers, um, we encounter this kind of typical condition that, that you're referencing, that essentially designers are often working through digital modeling, um, they're kind of looking, as Paul says, at the kind of totality of all these complex conditions. And the section also often becomes a retroactive resultant of those processes. In other words, you cut the model, you back the section out of um, a, a kind of pre-existing three-dimensional form, and it becomes a retroactive way of, of simply revealing or illustrating something that exists. I think one thing that we're interested in in, in the office is to also think about the section as generative, to think about the capacity of the section to actually act as a design tool and not simply as a kind of documentary instrument, right? That it's not simply about looking retroactively at things that exist, even though the way we're revealing this is through the documentation of existing buildings, but it's in service to the notion that the section can become um, a, a kind of 
incredibly important instrument for kind of catalyzing design and for thinking of design precisely because it has this capacity to, to sort of isolate this moment in which one can tune and manipulate and uh, kind of adjust things uh, kind of, kind of in, in absence of the kind of ubiquity of information. Mm, interesting. I mean, I used to think of section as the thing that, you know, persisted in pre-schematic through design development and then in material and then on site, you know, it was it was the th common language. But this formulation also introduced the thermodynamic. You know, I'm thinking of the ways in which the section drawings are showing not only material assemblies, but also the movement of air, the gradients, the thermodynamic gradients, which I think is something clearly that also benefits uh, this section, kind of sectional focus. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as you know, as, as we're describing, um, because of the fact that cold air, right, cold air falls, hot air rises, right, that the kind of convective currents and an understanding of kind of thermal performance is closely tied to the condition of verticality, um, that section becomes really a, the kind of preeminent document to understand a lot of these uh, performative aspects of the building. Um, and the, in the same way that it's a, a, a sort of powerful tool for understanding gravitational forces, right? So if you're looking at static forces, if you're thinking about structure and tectonics, um, those are also kind of related to the vertical axis, right? Um, and are most kind of easily revealed through section as a document as opposed to plan, for example. So I think there, these are some of the kind of arguments I think we, we tend to make about the efficacy of section, right? That it has the capacity to reveal kind of simultaneously this kind of multiplicity of conditions um, in a sort of single document that also allows them to be understood in a legible way relative to one another. It also has to be said that section when used to produce difference is um, pushes back against certain forms of capitalism, <laughs> which is to say that, you know, left to its own device, you get repetitive floors, plans on top of plans on top of plans. And anything that kind of says, okay, let's open that up. Let's find a hole. Let's find a way to connect people from one level to another section in some ways or variations. I mean, everything is a section, but we're talking about sections that are anomalies that get beyond the kind of repetition of the self-similar are often ways that architects start to push against just letting capital dominate and produce as much floor area as it can on a, on a given site. And that I think is kind of interesting. Which is one of the reasons that section has ultimately, or maybe frequently become a kind of victim of those same right, capitalist forces, right? That section is seen as a luxury to some extent because it it inevitably eliminates marketable floor area, right? Um, so there's this kind of uh, sort of contentious relationship between section and um, let's say optimization of economic return, right? On a certain kind of square footage of, of, uh, of land that uh, is being built upon. And it's one of the interesting reasons that maybe we feel we have to advocate for section because frequently I think it, it um, becomes uh, sort of subject to this kind of canceling out, right? Whether it's the ubiquity of the kind of suspended ceiling plane to hide the proliferation of mechanical equipment that we use to maintain the perfect climate control in our buildings, uh, which then sort of like, consumes section, uh, or whether it's yeah, the economic imperative for simply repeating the same floor plan ad nauseum that creates the kind of you know redundancy of the sort of stacked section that we, we tend to find most frequently. Mark Zuramaki, Paul Lewis, thanks so very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.